times together. Truly, I miss all the sounds of gathered worship, and I do mean all the sounds. I miss the sound of a tiny communion cup falling to the ground and skittering across the tiles. I definitely miss the thunderous cacophony of our children on their way up for first steps and off to Sunday school. I even miss the occasional piercing cry of a baby as her parent scurries down the side aisle in a state of mild mortification. The capacity for a young child to wail is truly an awesome thing. We tend to think that adults have the corner on self-expression. After all, we have words. We can be as precise in our meanings as our vocabularies will allow. We can go on for paragraphs about how we feel or think on a particular subject. When we're angry, we can say, I'm angry. When we're hungry, we can ask, when's lunch? An infant communicates without words, which leaves parents with some guesswork. That being said, in my day, I never mistook a diaper cry for a separation anxiety cry. The screaming panic of a baby who is experiencing the normal developmental stage of separation anxiety, well, that's enough to send the mountains quaking. As we grow up, we're taught to speak politely. No interrupting, no public weeping, and certainly no breaking the solemn quiet of worship. If anybody but a baby made such a ruckus during worship, we'd be a little concerned. Kirsten Linklater, a voice coach, explains the transformation like this. One day, your two-year-old runs into the room and hollers in his biggest outdoor voice, I want a cookie. You tell him he can have a cookie when he asks for it nicely. So he runs in again and says in a slightly unnatural sounding voice, may I please have a cookie, please? He receives praise. He has learned to say the right words and use the proper tone. Most parents consider such socialization a good thing. We gain a lot in the process. We gain the capacity to have conversations and express ourselves with greater clarity. But there is a trade-off. We clip the range of our voices to what is considered socially acceptable. Our freedom to haul off and wail is history. But what about what we need, what's been lost? What about when we need to express joy or sorrow or longing that is beyond our socially acceptable range of expression? I wonder if it's even possible 
to reclaim the outer reaches of the voices we were born with, to weep and to rejoice as completely as children do. The season of Advent often begins with a wail. Isaiah, for instance, weeps. Even though he uses words to give voice to his longings, the sentiment he shares is certainly past what is socially acceptable for the holiday season. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Isaiah howls these words. Several years ago, around the time my own children were but babies, it dawned on me. Isaiah and his people were racked with separation anxiety. Like an infant panicking when she awakens alone in a darkened room, the Israelites keened in the absence of God. They knew the stories of God's providential care, relentless mercy, and awesome deeds. But they knew these stories only by hearsay. They had not seen this God for themselves. They recognized that they had sinned against God. They had broken their covenant with God. And in turn, God had hidden God's face from them. Or maybe it was the other way around. Isaiah can't even seem to think straight here. Was it God's absence that drove the people to sin or their sin that chased God from the room? All Isaiah knows is the sheer despair of absence. All Isaiah wants is for God to come and save his people, to wrap them in a merciful embrace, to replace their filthy rags with robes of righteousness, to make it all okay again. Isaiah's is not polite speech. Our Advent prophet is fed up and freaked out. Eugene Peterson translates the climax of Isaiah's diatribe like this. In the face of all of this, are you going to sit there unmoved, God? Aren't you going to say something? Haven't you made us miserable long enough? These are not words you can say in your polite indoor voice. Advent is not for the faint-hearted. Advent invites us to confess with brutal honesty just how badly we need God. It means uncovering our shame and doubt, 
our threadbare hopes and our deferred dreams. It even means sometimes railing against a God who simply refuses to operate according to our whims and wills. Our throats may go hoarse if we pray in the fever pitch of Isaiah's prayers, yet I wonder if there is any other way to do it. We need the fullness of our voices now to express the depth of our longing. But here's the beautiful revelation, friends. Our longing meets its match in God's longing. Our longing for God meets its match in God's longing for us. A wise preacher puts it this way, in Advent we remember that God's ultimate dream is to be intimately connected with us to come down and dwell among us. Just as loving parents hurry to comfort their caterwauling children, so too does God hurry to the side of all who suffer and despair. Friends, I believe in the first advent in which God fulfilled dreams and prophecies through the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. And call me old fashioned, call me a holy roller, but I believe in the second advent too. I believe that there are more dreams and more prophecies yet to be fulfilled. I believe there will be a time soon and very soon when our cries will be silenced by the sound of a trumpet blaring. The Son of Man will come again in power and in glory. Power and glory. And then then we will shout praises and alleluias with the fervor of a toddler in a toy store. We will give voice to a purer joy than we have ever known. We will tell it from the mountaintops and we will whisper it in babies' ears. And we will sing. And we will sing. And we will sing. May it be so, friends. May it be so. Amen.